Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. It's my pleasure today to have Dr. Suzanne Baino from the Hospital of Sick Children in Toronto, Ontario, where she's a staff physician in pediatric emergency medicine. She also happens to be an associate professor at the University of Toronto and the medical co-director of the trauma program there, which is a, a great interdisciplinary program with emergency medicine and gen surgeon and a couple of others. She's here today to tell us about her best case ever. So Suzanne, why don't you take it away? Okay, thank you very much for having me here. So my best peds trauma case ever happened back when I was a PZM fellow. The child in this case didn't actually present as a trauma activation, but one was subsequently called for in the emergency department. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I was working the acute side. I was called into the hallway ASAP by a nurse who asked me to rapidly assess this child whose condition had dramatically changed since triage and decide if we should move her into the trauma bay and activate a trauma code. So this little girl was brought in by her father because he was concerned about a change in behavior. She had complained of a headache, and she started to vomit. She was alert and speaking at triage, actually, but was progressively becoming more somnolent, which alerted the nurse to get me involved in the hallway. The brief history was that she was being carried on her dad's back in the morning and had fallen off onto the ground, had been kind of dazed and out of it for a few minutes, and then was back to her normal self and played with her sister for several hours after that. After lunch, she had thrown up and then seemed sleepy and wasn't right, so her dad brought her into the ED. When I assessed her in the hallway, she was obtunded and quickly became responsive only to pain. She had a boggy swelling over her left temporal region. We pushed her into the trauma bay, which was close, had a trauma code called, and immediately began resuscitating her. She was likely, or she was literally deteriorating in front of us and started to demonstrate signs of herniation. Her vital signs became Cushing-like, with an elevated BP and significant bradycardia. I recall her left pupil dilating and she was starting to posture. I was terrified. By that time, I had started to hyperventilate her with a bag and mask and could see her pupil responding to that. We elevated the head of her bed and a nurse was drawing up RSI medications, which at that time and place were Atomidate and Vecuronium. I believe I asked for atropine as well to have available, but didn't use it. And I probably asked for lidocaine back then as well, which now I might have a slightly different RSI approach. We did use manual inline stabilization, 3% normal saline was immediately available, and we pushed 3 mils per kilo in over a few minutes while the nurse was preparing mannitol. Someone had very quickly placed an IV, so we had access, and while I was acutely managing her herniation, or impending herniation with hyperventilation, getting her airway secured, pushing the hyperosmolar agents, my attending physician was organizing disposition. And of course, we suspected she had an acute epidural hematoma with herniation. It was very clear that if she had any chance of survival, that epidural needed emergent evacuation. The staff trauma surgeon had actually come down to the ED with a stat trauma call, which was a little bit unusual, and everyone had very efficiently mobilized. We were literally in and out of the trauma bay within 10 minutes, for sure, which is far quicker than our normal trauma activations. So we left the trauma bay, went straight to the OR without neuroimaging, which is also almost unheard of now. I continued to hyperventilate her on our way up to the OR, kept pushing hypertonic saline and 3 mil per kilo boluses in the elevator and by that time, mannitol had been given. We were pushing fentanyl and midazolam for ongoing pain and sedation, and almost serendipitously, the neurosurgery resident and staff neurosurgeon had just come out of another case, so they were in-house ready, and quite literally with one call from the trauma bay and OR, was prepped and available for her, and we handed off care to the team in the OR suite. She underwent her craniotomy, did indeed have an epidural hematoma, which was evacuated. She was awake and speaking, hours later, and for sure the next day completely neurologically intact, very concerned about getting back to her game with her sister. 
So that is my best case ever. Wow, that is a crazy case. Yeah. I can only imagine how scared you felt. You're you're talking like as a fellow, you have this like Cushing, like clearly deteriorating high ICP in front of you, how to manage that, right? Yeah, it was a classic presentation and very terrifying. Yeah. So maybe real quickly, Dr. Mano, what are your thoughts now about using pretreatment drugs for intubating these isolated TBIs for kids? Yeah. So lidocaine and fentanyl, there really isn't very conclusive evidence for that. So I don't think it's wrong to use them. I also think that if they are going to be effective, they have to be used several minutes before the RSI. And oftentimes in a situation like this, there just isn't time for that kind of delay. Right. Like why delay intubation for the sake of drawing up drugs where there's equivocal evidence for them anyway, right? Right, yeah. right. And you mentioned using the uh, hyperosmolar agents. I mean, this isn't someone that was hemorrhaging or bleeding out, you know, in their chest or belly. Do you have a preference initially for hypertonic versus mannitol in a situation like that? Or is it just hypertonic maybe is more available quicker? So we use hypertonic saline all the time. One is really readily available. It's easy to give. It doesn't require any kind of preparation. And so that is our go-to. So that's what I would start with, whether it was an isolated head injury or multi-system trauma. I think with mannitol, you do have to be careful if they are hypotensive and hemodynamically compromised. Uh, You can make that worse. But I think in this case, actually, mannitol would have been fine. And we did give it in addition to the hypertonic because the main issue was ICP. And for the hypertonic, what's the dose that you start with? I know Rosen's mentions up to one millikilo of 3%, but I've seen in other places like Pete's ICU, they use three to five. Do you guys have just like a go-to weight-based sort of dose for the hypertonic? Yeah, three mils per kilo over three minutes, just so it's easy to remember. So a kid like this, oftentimes before we start a hypertonic infusion, we're usually giving several boluses of that. So a child is often getting about nine to 10 mils per kilo before an infusion is started. Suzanne, thanks so much for being on the uh, on the podcast today. That's a really amazing episode. Do you want to maybe just walk us through some of uh, your teaching points, like what you took away from that case as a fellow? Yeah, absolutely. So I chose this case for a few reasons. The first and most significant for me is that in pediatric EM, we do great work for lots of children and their families every day, but it's really not an everyday occurrence that we have the opportunity to save a life. And this case jumped out at me as a situation I hope never to have again, but if I did, I would actually want it to go exactly as it had that day. There were some lucky things for her. Her dad recognized she needed to go to the emergency department. Thankfully, it was where she needed to be when she started to deteriorate. Our teams worked quickly and expertly together when it counted the most, and it paid off for this little girl and her family. And one of the reasons I think that efficient teamwork was able to happen is that we had recently had a simulation scenario of TBI and cerebral herniation. And although the circumstances of this case were different, the management principles were fresh in people's minds. And of course, we know that multidisciplinary simulations are excellent exercises for educating, practicing, developing crisis resource management principles, and identifying systems issues. We were also very lucky, this was a classic story in clinical presentation, that things worked out a bit fortuitously for us with a well-trained, experienced ER team, a staff trauma surgeon that just happened to show up and made a prompt and executive decision to bypass CT, knowing this was a classic case and the patient was unstable. As well, last but not least, that a neurosurgeon agreed with that plan and was there on a Saturday afternoon ready to operate exactly when we needed him to be. So the teaching point there really is that along with previous clinical experience, simulation readiness, good teamwork, clear leadership were the keys to having this work out so well for her and, as we know, are for most resuscitation scenarios. The second reason I think this case is really important to share is because it highlights The reality that many kids with significant injuries and high injury severity scores don't actually present to us as classic trauma activations. And that may not be very different from the elderly spectrum of emergency medicine, where this likely happens also. 
In pediatrics, we really need to be vigilant for patterns of injury that are just classically, again, high severity with lots of morbidity or mortality if they're missed. The most pressing example of this is, of course, non-accidental injury, where children will often present multiple times to various providers with vague, nonspecific symptoms. And by the time they're diagnosed, sometimes it's tragically just too late. Another classic example is the handlebar injury in kids, which usually seems pretty innocuous, is often missed at presentation because kids are just so well and the mechanism seems really minor. But the problem being that those spears often cause significant abdominal injury and lead to higher operative rates and intervention and so forth. So I think a major learning point from my case is to remain vigilant in children for significant trauma that doesn't present as a trauma activation, which in this case that initial nurse appropriately did and recognized. And lastly, it's quite standard now, in our institution at least, that every child with a TBI requires a CT scan prior to OR, and there are many valid reasons for that. But in this case that I presented, time was really of the essence, and I think that if a neurosurgeon had insisted on one, she may not have actually had the outcome that she did. So for classic presentations like epidural hematomas, where there is a boggy temporal swelling and signs of herniation, those kids can and should likely go straight to the OR. Yes. So Dr. Bailey makes some amazing points here. Uh, you know, I'm just going to quickly summarize them that the first one being a plug for the use of actually practicing your crisis resource management. So you have a prepared team that'll work really smoothly. Uh, in my experience, simulation exercises, and even if you can arrange it at your institution in situ exercises, you know, actually in the ED and the trauma bay are, are really key. And I agree, you know, even at the, the Children's Hospital here in Ottawa, it can be easy to become complacent as the percentage of cases, even trauma cases, that would be considered, you know, high acuity, you know, the number of those is actually fairly low. And kids can present looking very well and with normal vitals until they're right at that like tippy tip of decompensating quickly. And like Dr. Benno mentioned, same goes for elderly patients. It's not just kids. And it's tough in this era of CT, absolutely, to get surgeons to come even see someone without imaging, no matter how classic the presentation is. And certainly, you know, I sympathize with them, you know, having been on surgery rotations in the past few years, it does make a difference for preoperative planning. But if you have someone where you've made that clinical diagnosis, and like in this case where time is absolutely of the essence, it really behooves you to advocate for your patient, you know, so get on the phone early and voice that concern to your consultant to make the appropriate collaborative decision. Does that sound fair to you? Does that sort of jive with what we're talking about? Yeah, I think you summarized that very well. So Dr. Baino, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Everyone else, join us next time when we bring you another best case ever. Until then, keep your stick on the ice. I'm Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan.